So Bernie Sanders is in. Yeah, and he raised a lot of money. And he's got a petition that he is trying to get a million signatures on. Um, I think uh, as of this recording, he's at about 600,000. So um, probably by the time in which this runs, he might hit a million. Good organizing tool for him. We'll see what uh, the next step in this rollout is. But, uh, you know, shit, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Start over? Yeah, let's start over. Okay. Sorry. I wish this were alive. That would have been awesome. <laughs> um, sorry. All right. Elrod, how you doing? Good. So uh, Bernie Sanders is in. He is, and he raised a lot of money. And he's got this petition that uh, he's trying to get a whole bunch of signatures on. It'll be interesting to see how he does his rollout compared to everyone else. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the important thing to keep in mind when it comes to Bernie Sanders running this time around is he does have a, an advantage in terms of having a really good list. Um, he's always been a strong grassroots fundraiser, fundraiser, but he also has lists that he has developed since 2015. And, of course, he's been developing those lists ever since. So that's an, he does have that advantage on his side. He also has the disadvantage of high expectations. He won New Hampshire uh, going away last time, so there's going to be an expectation that he wins New Hampshire. Uh, and it's going to be hard for him. There are other candidates who are in who are competing hard in New Hampshire and other places. Elizabeth Warren uh, comes to mind in New Hampshire. So his expectations are much higher this time around. So it'll be interesting to see how he manages those. It will be. And I think, you know, look, he's the first um – you know, real front runner in terms of some of the early polls that have taken place to get into the race, right? Um, the pressure for him to stay in first or second place is very um, is very intense. And if Joe Biden runs, he'll be in the same place. So I'm Doug Thornell. I'm joined by my partner in crime, the super talented Adrian Elrod. And uh, we've got a great guest for you today. Actually, our first journalist uh, on the electables. It's Rebecca Buck. She is a superstar at CNN. Uh, She's covering uh, the 2020 campaigns, party committees. She's actually been assigned to Senator Cory Booker's beat. And prior to that, she's worked. She worked at uh, BuzzFeed and Real Clear Politics and The Washington Examiner. And both Adrian and I have known Rebecca for a long time and have watched her career just shoot through the roof. And we're it's just so great to have you here, Rebecca. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. And I hope as the first journalist on your podcast, I don't screw it up for all the <laughs> subsequent journalists on your podcast. It's no, you're really going to make it harder lot, for it's them. It's a lot you're of gonna, pressure. You're going to raise the bar for them. It's going to be harder for them. I hope so. <laughs> I also want to point out that Rebecca and I are also both neighbors, although we never see each other because we're traveling so much. We are, which is so sad. I know, it's really sad. But we are neighbors, technically. Technically, that's right. Yes, that's right. So, Rebecca, how'd you get your start in journalism? My start in journalism? Well, I I started out going to journalism school. I went to the University of Missouri. Go Tigers. Missouri or Missouri? Well, Missouri (laughs) and Columbia. Thank you. That's how I say it. And Doug says Missouri. If you're a little bit closer to Arkansas, where Adrian is from, though, it becomes Missouri the closer you get. But for me, it was Missouri. And I started covering state politics when I was a student at the University of Missouri. It's very close to Jefferson City, the state capital. And so that's where I got my start, where I started learning how this all works. But I did an internship with The New Yorker here in Washington with Ryan Lizza, and then moved to Washington after I graduated, started working at the New York Times as a fellow, and the rest, uh, as we say, is history. So I've been in Washington, really, for all of my real professional career, covering government, covering campaigns. 
So, Rebecca, give us a snapshot of how CNN is planning to do its coverage in 2020. I mean, it's got to be difficult, right, because you've got so many candidates who are going to be running on the Democratic side, many of whom have yet to announce. Um, So how are you guys sort of structuring your coverage? How are you deciding who to cover, when to cover, how to cover these people? I know that's a large, loaded question, but... It's an extremely challenging question, and I can't really take credit for having any of the answers. That credit goes to... David Chalian, our political director, of course, Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, Mm -hmm. uh, tons of other people. Terrence Burley works under David. And they're the ones who are really figuring out how do we make this work? How do we do justice to this election cycle with so many candidates and storylines? And it's, from an organizational perspective, incredibly complicated. Uh, But they've found a way so far to make it work, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically the key is first to be humble. If you look at what happened last election cycle, we thought we knew how that story was going to end and we didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that we're going into this election cycle without any necessarily preconceived notions about how this primary will play out, just keeping an open mind, telling the story as it happens, and then being nimble. So as surprises happen, as the candidates grow and develop and uh, things happen in the race, being nimble enough to cover it uh, and switch directions if we need to. So we're starting the race covering uh, some candidates, assigning them a full-time reporter, others just picking up uh, stories where we can. But if things change and a candidate we didn't expect to shoot into the lead shoots into the lead, uh, then we'll readjust. But it's being flexible, I think, is the key in a race like this because there is no front runner. We don't know what's going to happen. And we know that we don't know what's going to happen, which I think is very important. Right. How did you get assigned Senator Booker? Did you have to lobby for that or was it just random? <laughs> how, I mean, how does that happen? Like, wh- who, how is that decision made? You know, I don't know that this is the case everywhere, but for us, I didn't need to lobby. It just sort of happened. It started out with me following Senator Booker on his first trip to Iowa in October. And that was the first time I'd ever covered him. I didn't have any sort of pre-existing relationship with his team. Uh, And I suppose because that trip went well, I just sort of kept covering him and kept in touch with his team. When it came time to assign the various reporters, it made sense uh, from our standpoint to just have me continue. And do you, and who else has sort of a, a designated uh, reporter assigned to them right now um, uh, for CNN? Well, a number of candidates, yeah. actually. We're very fortunate, obviously, because we have the resources to sure. commit reporters to a number of these candidates. Um, I would say half a dozen more candidates have full-time reporters right now. And then we have, of course, our whole political team covering all of the rest. And so no one is not getting covered, which is the important thing to remember. We're not letting any of these guys fall through the cracks. Uh, But of course, some of the candidates at this stage in the top tier just require more resources. Right, right. So obviously, I know you've got to be a little careful because you are a journalist and you're objectively covering what's happening on the campaign trail. But would love to get your thoughts on you know, who do you think has had a really good rollout so far? We've talked a lot about rollouts on this show. Um, We've talked about Amy Klobuchar and the grit that she showed by standing in the snow for, you know, (laughs) over an hour or however long she was on stage. We talked about um, Kamala Harris being able to build a crowd of 22,000 in Oakland uh, with less than a a week to plan. So is there anybody that really stood out? I also liked Cory Booker's announcement where he's, you know, in his backyard. I guess now everybody knows where... (laughs) 
lips. Um, but is there anybody that's just really impressed you or do you just have any thoughts you want to share on on the rollout? Yeah, well, as you all know very well, uh, the rollouts not only tell you a lot about the candidate, but tells you what their campaign wants to accomplish and different candidates want to accomplish different things with their rollouts. For Kamala Harris, she took, uh, you know, a very sort of big approach. She wanted to do it big. She wanted a big rally. Uh, it got her a lot of buzz. And she mm-hmm. lo- the visual of an event like that makes you look incredibly presidential. Amazing. And it was amazing. Getting a crowd of 20,000 people for a rollout is not an easy thing to do. No. Um, only certain candidates can pull that off. And so it was very impressive. She wanted, uh, at least what I read into it, was her campaign wanted a wow factor with mm-hmm. their rollout, some shock value. And they got that. Elizabeth Warren took a very different approach. She sort of soft launched. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but she didn't have that instant, you know, big fundraising right. uh, that Kamala Harris did. She didn't have that instant impact. Uh, and for some candidates, that works. And uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, still in the top tier. So I wouldn't say that her rollout was any less good necessarily than Kamala's. It was just different. With Cory Booker's, we saw him looking at uh their approach told me a lot about what their campaign is trying to accomplish because he was directly speaking to a number of different groups. He started out going on one of the biggest African-American radio shows in the country, mm-hmm. then went on The View speaking directly to women, mm-hmm. did an interview in Spanish with Univision, uh, so speaking directly to Spanish-speaking voters. Um, so really meeting voters where they were as opposed to taking this big uh, broad brush approach that other campaigns would take. So the only campaign so far that really stands out to me in terms of having a really unsuccessful rollout, Tulsi Gabbard, no question about it. She <laughs> surprised her campaign yeah. team when she announced, first of all, they didn't know she was going to announce with Van Jones on CNN. Uh, and then there was all of this campaign disarray leading up to her official announcement in Hawaii, which no one was able to watch because of the time difference. There were a few things that yeah. could have been improved objectively with that rollout. I agree. And by the way, I did honestly had no idea that she formally announced in Hawaii. So that made it sound pretty pathetic exactly. on my part. But that should also tell you some things I, you know, because all three of us do a lot of TV all the time. So exactly. There you go. But I think a lot of pretty successful rollouts this time around. And you can only you can only expect a rollout to get you so much. But as long as people can walk away saying, you know, I know the candidate a little bit better, they're excited about them, that's, and, you know, raise some money, that's all a campaign can really ask for from that first impression. And I think rollouts are extra important this time around compared to 2016 because there are so many people running and you are not going to always have your moment in the sun where you're you're getting, you know, a day's worth of media coverage or several days worth of media coverage. Um, so I think rollouts at this point in terms of framing your message and really honing in on who, how you want to you know, frame your campaign and what narrative you want to draw on, um, the rollouts are even that more important this time around. That's true. That's and we've true. seen with uh, almost all of the candidates uh, who have announced that they do two things. They uh, go on Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC, <laughs> and right. then they participate in a CNN town hall. Sometimes the order is reversed. Right. Sometimes it's a CNN town hall right. first, then Rachel Maddow. So those two, and you know, obviously – Kudos to your network because those are two sort of staples of these rollouts that now, you know, everyone really kind of has to do. 
Uh, although Cory Booker has not done the CNN town hall yet, so we're eager, mm. eagerly awaiting whenever that moment will come. I assume there's an ask out there. For I'm him. sure there is, but we and we've extended the ask pretty much to everyone. We want to be able to do these town halls with as many Democrats as possible uh, because we think it's a good opportunity not only for the candidates, but I love that it's an opportunity to hear the questions directly from voters in these states where we're holding the town halls, because it tells you so much about where the Democratic Party is right now, what are the issues that are important to them. And it's free primetime earned media coverage. I mean, yep. you can't go wrong with that. So if any anybody's thinking about running out there who is is not going to do Matt out or not going to do a CNN town hall, uh, you may want to rethink your, your decision. So you have been so far to Iowa and South Carolina in terms of covering mm-hmm. uh, Senator Booker, um, just for our listeners, take us behind the scenes in terms of how you prepare for that trip. Like, sure. what do you, what do you, what do you get? What do you do before you land? Uh, you know, in Iowa or in South Carolina to um, get ready to cover this candidate and and you know also get your you know report on a story. Right. Well, it's different for every trip because, as you know, every trip there's a different theme. The candidate has different objectives for this particular trip or two trips to Iowa and South Carolina, Cory Booker was obviously introducing himself to these voters for the first time as a presidential candidate. So it was more of a broad theme. There wasn't going to be any sort of policy focus necessarily. So I was able to really just sort of get a foundation under me. So calling a bunch of Iowa Democrats, seeing how they're feeling about Cory Booker, about the trip, what are the things that they're looking for? And then I know going in, what are the things that I should be looking for or listening for? Uh, You have to pay attention to where is he holding the events? Look at the schedule. What what are they trying to tell voters by where they're having these events? The symbolism. The format. How big are they going to be? And that tells you a lot about where they are in the campaign at this stage and what they're trying to accomplish. So you have to ask yourself, why are they doing what they're doing? Try to figure that out as much as possible. Uh, And then, of course, nail down the logistics. When am I going to have to be on air? When am I going to be covering these events? What events are we covering? Uh, That is the nitty gritty that you never see as a viewer. Uh, But that's a huge part of my job as a TV reporter is figuring out just how do we make this work so that I'm getting on TV but also doing my job reporting. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have to Google what restaurants and coffee shops you're going to go to because that is the most important part of traveling to these early states. You're not a real campaign reporter until you're bragging about your favorite restaurant in Des Moines, exactly, Iowa. Exactly. In certain areas, best barbecue in South Carolina. Oh best. my gosh. Don't even get campaign reporters started on the barbecue because they will never stop talking about it. It's Kind I feel of like funny. we could do an entire episode with Jonathan Martin just on uh You know that's who I was thinking of across the country when I was course. saying that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely Jonathan Martin on is notorious. But you should ask him for recommendations because he'll give you a lot. Completely. And is access, getting access to the candidates obviously really important? It is. So I feel lucky at this stage, at least, covering Senator Booker because he is extremely accessible. He wants to talk to us. He wants to talk to voters, reporters, pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you do have to organize that with the campaign. I did a story with Senator Booker during his first visit to Iowa, sat down with him after an event. Uh, but they made it really easy. They wanted to do it. And so that always makes it a lot easier for us. There are some candidates you'll cover 
we're not as press friendly or we'll get to a stage where they don't want to talk to us. But at this stage, it's fun. So, you know, look, we've talked a lot about the top five, top seven, arguably, candidates, you know, running so far in the presidential campaign. Um, everyone from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to maybe Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, et cetera, Kirsten Gillibrand. But is there anybody out there who, including some of those, that you think we as pundits and the media in general should be taking more seriously or be or pay more attention to? Like, are, are there sleeper candidates out there? Is there anybody that really comes to mind? Or do you think that, you know, everyone's kind of getting the coverage that makes sense at this stage of the game? Yeah. Well, I, for one, I do hope that we are paying attention to everyone because, again, lessons learned from last cycle. Mm-hmm. We, I say we generally because I personally interviewed Donald Trump before he launched his campaign, and I felt like I was treating him with some sort of seriousness. Sure. But generally, the media did not. They did not. I can attest to that as a former Hillary Clinton staffer. They did not. Exactly. And so we never want to make that mistake again collectively. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that we're treating all of these candidates with a level of seriousness. And, you know, you don't only, only have to look at 2016, but look at 2012, when you had a time in that election cycle when Michelle Bachman was a front runner in that race, which seems crazy, mm-hmm. even in retrospect, but it happened. And so it was such a crowded field. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what candidates are going to catch fire. It could be one moment in one debate that changes everything. Yep. And so I hope that we're treating all these candidates seriously. But there are some who you hear about who are you know, just completely new to the scene, uh, who are getting a lot of positive buzz. Mayor Pete Buttigieg is one mm-hmm. who I've spoken to many Democrats in the early states and here in D.C. who really think of him as impressive on the stump, uh, really impressive answering questions, and have been surprised by him because he just wasn't on many people's radar before this. And so I think you'll see some stories like his of candidates who get into this race, people who people don't know a lot about them, and they surprise people by doing better than they would have expected. And so I think we need to be on the lookout for candidates like that and just constantly following everyone to uh, be ready for those moments. And speaking of debates, uh, CNN, congratulations that you're getting the second Democratic National. That's right. Um, I, t- I take full credit for debate. that. That was all me. <laughs> you, you made that happen. Good job. Good work. Good yeah. work. I, know, I had no part in making that happen, but our great, our great politics team and our great team at CNN did make that happen. So we're all very excited for it. It'll Fantastic. be a good debate. What are you hearing from voters on the ground in Iowa and South Carolina? What do they care about? You know, it might not surprise you, Doug, that what they care about the most is not any one policy issue. It is who can beat Donald Trump. And that is the question they are asking candidates, either directly or indirectly. How do you measure up? How will you beat him in the general election? Uh, You know, any number of policy issues, I think, at this moment. But that is really the key core question that keeps coming up and that all of these candidates are answering for voters at this stage uh, is that electability question. And it's such, I mean, if you look at the polling, any of these candidates would beat Donald Trump. It's just a matter of how much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's sort of a moot point, at least for now. But for voters, that is the number one. No question about it. And as a corollary to that, that's why you see 
so many Democrats turning out to these events a year ahead of the Iowa caucuses, more than a year ahead of the New Hampshire primary, because there's just so much energy to see someone, anyone beat Donald Trump among these Democratic voters. And what is Cory Booker's path to the nomination? What is his team telling you is his path to the nomination? That's a great question. Uh, it's not, well, his team has discussed this with me, but I think all you have to do is look at what he's doing and what he's saying and you see his path. It's uh, very similar to an Obama path in that he sees a great deal of opportunity in Iowa. He views his path there as a combination of attracting millennials, younger voters, uh, more establishment Democrats, and then doing well in Iowa, followed by winning or doing very well in South Carolina with the African-American vote there. And that's really his path. So bringing together African-American voters in the Democratic Party, young voters in the Democratic Party, uh, and then, of course, some of the more traditional Democrats as well. One last question for you. There, it seems like a lot of the Democrats are trying to um, sh demonstrate to voters how tough they are, right? You right. have Kamala Harris. I think you could text fearless, I believe, when she announced. Everyone talks about being a fighter. Right. A, Everyone's fighter. a fighter. And Cory Booker's taking a slightly different approach. I mean, mm -hmm. it, for him, it's unity. It's love. Although I have her, I've seen recently sort of trying to make the point that he is tough enough to be president. Right. How does how does he fit into that argument of toughness, fearlessness, uh, a fighter, uh, when, you know, his message for so long has been about unity, love, bringing people together? Right. There's definitely that spectrum in the Democratic primary right now from, I would put Cory Booker on one end with that message of love and unity and maybe Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on the other end toward the more fighting, aggressive end. Uh, and it's interesting because he's trying to strike that balance, uh, especially recently, saying, you know, that he does want to heal the country. He does want to promote love, especially in the era of Donald Trump. But he likes to highlight the tough political fights that he has survived in New Jersey to get to where he is today. And one of the things he's been urging voters is to watch Street Fight, the documentary about his first unsuccessful campaign for mayor in Newark, New Jersey. And that was, I don't know if you guys have seen this documentary, but Sharp that James. was a bloody political battle. Yep. Um, and so Booker is trying to emphasize that just because you promote a message of love doesn't mean you can't be tough, but you should be tough but compassionate. It's an interesting message um, because there's some nuance there, and nuance doesn't always translate in politics. So we'll mm -hmm. see. We'll see if he's able to strike that balance. And I think it's interesting that you brought this up, Rebecca, because a lot of candidates, some of the most successful presidential candidates, candidates for any office, have lost an office before. Mm -hmm. um, so they know what defeat feels like. Um, they learn from those, not even really mistakes, but from those uh, situations. So it is important to note that Cory Booker has not won every single race that he's ever run for. And I think yes, that right. really can help build some, some grit and um, an extra dose of determination in some of these folks. So. It can. And just to ask Beto O'Rourke, it can also be very, very good for your uh, image for mm -hmm. publicity. Do you think Beto gets in? What are you hearing? I don't know. What the are your sources telling you? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. It's, I would not, let's put it this way, I would not be surprised if he did get in. Mm -hmm. Biden. But, I, but I also wouldn't be shocked if he didn't. Vice President Biden. That's another one where we, you know, we talk about this every day in our 
among our politics team and daily our guess on this changes. Today, I would guess that he does get in, but ask me tomorrow and it might be a different answer. We will ask you tomorrow. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for joining the Electables. Thank you guys this for having me. This was so much so fun. Much. Anything we want to promote for CNN? You need to get anything out there? Uh, well, obviously, watch CNN's political coverage. We have a town hall coming up with Bernie Sanders on Monday, moderated by Wolf Blitzer. So that's the next town hall. Fantastic. Everyone tune in to the town hall Monday night. Thanks again, Rebecca. Thank, Thank you, you, Rebecca. Guys. Appreciate it. And for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>